This is episode 280 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. Get an insider look at the making of our show, contribute directly to programming, and catch video versions of the podcast when you sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. You can try out some of the history you learn about here on our show with Experience Shakespeare, our membership here at That Shakespeare Life, offering digital history activity kits that work like science labs for Shakespeare history. Come inside where you can cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Learn more at CassidyCash.com slash member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Tim van Andel. I'm a professor in ethnobotany in the Netherlands. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's that Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. The earlier versions of Shakespeare's works, there were a lot more things like that, you know, by God, Zounds, God's blood, things like that. After 1606, you have very, very much fewer of these because you simply weren't allowed to use them. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. I have a short notice for you ahead of today's episode. I apologize for the general gruff sounding in my voice today. I'm recovering from a cold and struggling through a horrible cough that threatens to take away my voice entirely. But never fear. As a true performance professional, the show must go on. Therefore, I'm armed with three cups of chamomile tea, a large bottle of water, and an excellent audio editor who will remove any coughs. Thank you so much, Gary. Therefore, without more ado, let's dive into the history. Profanity is a term we use to describe naughty words, but as a definition, profanity is anything that happens when specific religious terms get stolen from their original intent and applied with manipulated meaning. Think of words like damn or hell. They're appropriate when used in context of their biblical meaning, but offensive when you hear them in an action movie, for example. When it comes to the origin of curse words, the Latin term profanus actually meant outside the temple to signify terms that desecrated what was held sacred. If you've watched the TV show Becoming Elizabeth, which is set in the 16th century, the F word gets used liberally on that show, which surprised me and made me wonder if the F word was in fact historically accurate or if that had been added for modern flair. To find out exactly what words were expletives for Shakespeare's lifetime and which ones were normal for him but highly offensive for us today, we're sitting down with our guest, Jesse Scheidlauer, to explore the colorful world of Elizabethan language and profanities. Jesse Scheidlauer is a lexographer, editor, author, and programmer. He is past president of the American Dialect Society, was the project editor of the Random House Dictionary of American Slang, and is the author of The F Word, a book that explores the history of this particular expletive. He is also a former editor-at-large of the Oxford English Dictionary. New York Magazine named him one of the smartest people in New York. You can find out more about Jesse's work and links to his publications in the show notes for today's episode. 
As a small content warning today, we are talking about curse words and offensive language. We take great care to use things like F word or C word instead of actually saying the word, but we do mention a couple of curse words in our context of the conversation. Out of respect for our listeners and the students they share our podcast with, if you're listening to this episode in a classroom or where small ears might be present, you may want to preview this episode before sharing. Hello, Jesse. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Thanks. Good to be here. What are some examples of curse words that are offensive words today that might not have been offensive if you were to hear them in Shakespeare's lifetime? Uh, Well, Cassidy, the first thing we have to do is discuss how some of these terms work. So curse words or obscenity or offensive terms or taboo, these are all very broad categories. And each of these have different valences at different times. So it's not just that specific words that we now think are offensive or that we now think are inoffensive had different levels of offensiveness at different times. It's that the entire categories change quite a bit over time. To take one obvious example, ethnic and racial terms tend to be considered about the worst words right now. But in the past, even the fairly recent past, these were not considered that bad. At the same time, religious terminology, for example, uh, in the period we're discussing was about the worst thing you could do. And now these are regarded as relatively minor terms. Well, what about the words in his plays? Are there words that maybe we would gloss over if we're experiencing the plays for the first time or going through the text for the first time? What would have been offensive curse words or phrases that are in Shakespeare's plays to be offensive that we might not notice the first go round? Most prominently in Shakespeare, these are going to be religious terms. So, you know, at this exact period, there was a lot of differences of opinion about how offensive you could be with with any kind of blasphemy or oaths. In 1606, for example, there were laws passed preventing you from from jestingly or profanely using God's name in plays. And if you look at plays that were published before then, the earlier versions of Shakespeare's works, there were a lot more things like that, you know, by God, zounds, God's blood, things like that. After 1606, you have very, very much fewer of these because you simply weren't allowed to use them. And now these words are considered relatively minor. I mean, we know that they're considered somewhat offensive, but they're not going to make us stop reading and say, I I can't believe he said that. It's like the Hayes office for plays. I know that movies changed a lot that way before the abolition of the Hayes office. There was a lot of control over the offensive language in film. And then post Hayes office, you've got, you know, the F word going out in films, which was just absolutely scandalous at the time. It sounds like for Shakespeare, there was a similar, you know, identifiable break between what's okay to do. It was a very similar kind of thing. I mean, it was involving some kind of Uh, effectively legal censorship preventing you from saying things that were widely used that people knew, but for, for very different reasons were considered inappropriate at these different times. There are manuals written on almost everything else in Shakespeare's lifetime. Are there any books or pamphlets published either about the proper way to speak or that were specifically warning against an established set of offensive words and phrases for Shakespeare's lifetime? There wasn't anything that specific because uh, different people had different opinions about what was appropriate. You know, as we've just said, certain religious terms were at one point officially banned. But you can tell from looking at a variety of sources at the time that that people had different opinions over which particular things were considered very offensive. So, for example, sexual vocabulary, the common terms, Shakespeare never uses any of them directly, but he appears to pun on them in a number of places. And these seem very clear. 
But there were other authors at the time who were using words of this sort, even in relatively formal contexts. So, for example, a, a version of the F word uh, appears in Chapman's preface to his translation of the Iliad. You know, so you know, extremely serious literary work, but using an equivalent of you know, a version of the F word. Was the F word a curse word for Shakespeare's lifetime as well as today? Because I know in John Florio's dictionary published in 1598, he enumerates the F word or F bomb. And for the sake of my listening audience and not wanting my episode to have to be censored, I'm not going to use the expletive here in spoken language. But the dictionary writes out the word and identifies it as a non-offensive word. So was the F word from the 16th century, did it have the same definition as it does today? And would it have been something offensive for Shakespeare's lifetime? Uh, well, first of all, let me clarify that Florio did not actually say that it was if he used it as a, as a translation of various Italian words uh, without any kind of note, you know, suggesting that this was one of many possible synonyms you know, for these terms. But we can't say specifically that he said this is OK. There were other authors around the same time, the, the late, late 16th, early 17th century, who also used versions of the F word in dictionary works, which suggest that it was in wide use and considered somewhat acceptable. But there are many other cases where we know that it was not considered acceptable. And the fact that Shakespeare only only alluded to it, if he did, I mean, one can one can debate this, is another sign that this was not considered fully okay at the time. I wanted to ask you about the TV show Becoming Elizabeth. That TV show is set in and around the 16th century there, obviously during the reign of Elizabeth I. So it's overlaps with Shakespeare's lifetime. And they just use the F word prolifically in that show. I mean, it's everywhere. Even like the young Edward as a kid is throwing this word around. And I just wonder how anachronistic that is. I mean, was it accurate for that to be such a prolific word to get to get used? Or was it considered offensive enough that maybe that's put into the TV show for modern audiences as opposed to what would have been real in the 16th century? Uh, well, I should say, first of all, that I have not seen the show, but based on what I read, it is unquestionably anachronistic. The thing that I didn't say about the use of, of the F word before is that until relatively recently, like mainly the, the late 19th century, it was only used in sexual senses. You know, maybe one, one other thing. So most of the common ways that we use it now were not used back then. The only way it was used, certainly in Shakespeare's time, the only way it was used was in a sexual sense. So any kind of use as, as, you know, just for emphasis, you know, the ing form for emphasis, for example, that would be completely anachronistic. Now, I personally think that it's okay to do this for the purposes of TV shows and things like that, because if you are using something perfectly authentic, it's not going to have the same ring to modern ears. That is, there's nothing wrong with using substitute strong terms that will give you the flavor of what people were saying back then. But strictly speaking, no, that kind of use would be anachronistic. Are there any curse words which have survived the centuries and would have been used as offensive or strong language in the 16th and 17th century, which are still used as offensive and strong language today? I think of the word uh, damn, for example, that has you know a non-offensive definition as well as an offensive one. But are there others? Well, many of the common words were in use back then one way or another, uh, terms that all of the, the God-related words are, are one category, including damn and, and using God's name. The F word, the C word, which Shakespeare, again, effectively spells out in, in, in Twelfth Night. And, you know, French versions of this as well, French versions of the F word and C word. You know, in, in Henry V, he uses in a way that makes it clear that these were considered extremely offensive in French. 
in terms like bastard, in terms that insult people's uh, parentage, which now are considered extremely or you know relatively mild uh, expletives, back then were considered much more offensive. When you get into the, the 17th century, these would have often been spelled with dashes the same way that that stronger words are. We recognize the manipulation of religious terms as well as terms for bodily functions like feces as words often borrowed from their original intent and subsequently applied as expletives. However, are there other sources we can identify from the 16th century, perhaps diseases or ailments, which have served for borrowing sources to get used as an insult or to verbally abuse someone? Pox is one example that that is widely used at this era. Uh, Pox in, in various ways to insult people or to you know to curse people without using a word like damn, for example. Yeah, I would think that I've, I've seen things like being dumb or being crippled as things that get thrown around, not necessarily to describe someone's physical or mental attributes, but to actually suggest to try and insult someone. It's not it's not a literal use of the word. It's an application of malice to the other person. Yeah, those are those are both good examples. So for Shakespeare's lifetime, what was the most obscene phrase that you could say? Um, again, that's something you, you can't say exactly because this isn't something that you can rank in any real way. I mean, even though some of the sexual terms were broadly used and, and were considered acceptable in certain circumstances, you know, the evidence is pretty clear that these were still considered relatively offensive. Again, as we've seen, religious uh, religious blasphemy was something that was legally pr- you know, prescribed from use. So in another way, those would have to be you know pretty severe as well. Uh, but I think we, we can't really, because everyone uses these in different ways, and, and there are different ways of looking at these issues, uh, that there's no way to simply rank them and say, well, th- this one is worse than the others. That makes sense. I think I just expected there to be some shock value assigned to the phrases, such that when we see them show up in Shakespeare's plays, you know, he might have added an expletive or an obscene phrase to the dialogue of a particular character strictly for the the shock value to make the audience go, oh, my gosh, did he just say that, you know, or something in that vein. But it sounds like maybe it's the same tenor of explicit language in films or in stage performances that we have today. They are strong language and they do carry an emphasis as such, but they aren't necessarily ranked in order from, well, this is really horrible to that one is if that just came out of your mouth, well, now we've got to go get the soap. You know, I mean, that's kind of the situation. Yes. I mean, a much later example, but in um, in Pygmalion, you know, when Eliza says the word bloody, there's actually a notion in the script to pause because there will be a strong audience reaction to her saying this out loud. You don't see you don't see that in Shakespeare, but it's a very clear sign of how strong that word was at that time. I know we would love to learn more about this topic and about the development of language and the place of profanities and obscenities in common language, as well as script language and things that we might have put in um, the characters' mouths that we wouldn't have said ourselves. Where should we begin? What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? I would say the single best source for for a wide-ranging discussion of this would be Melissa Moore's book, Holy Shit, which is spelled with an asterisk in place of the I, but is is meant to be pronounced uh, as the word itself. Subtitle is A Brief History of Swearing, uh, and it encompasses a wide range of of offensive kinds of language, so not just sexual terms or scatological terms, but religious terms, the things that we've been discussing so far, covering a wide range of of history. If I had to name one book to use, that would be it. 
Uh, more recently, John McWhorter, the Columbia linguist, uh, has published a book called Nine Nasty Words, which discusses nine particular examples that he goes into the detail of their history and how they and how they have changed over time. Th that would be another great place to start. We will place links to these resources in the show notes for today's episode. Thank you for these excellent suggestions. These are a great place to start if you're interested in the history of specific words and how they have developed over time. Now, Jesse, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Well, I mean, I, I myself would say I would take the Oxford English Dictionary because... I think that's it, fitting for what uh, you do. It, yes. it, it's fitting. It's, you know, it's many, many volumes long, of course, so it gives you a, a lot to cover, uh, and you can you know, reassemble much of Hamlet from it alone. But you know, dictionaries are, are what I like to read, and that has you know, everything one would want. So uh, you know, while it's not exactly a single book, that is the one thing I would want to have. If I can have all of Shakespeare, I, I think I can have all of the OED. You'd be all you'd be all set. Yes, I think you can. Uh, I think that's an excellent selection for your desert island. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, right now, the thing I'm mainly uh, focusing on is a new edition of my book, The F Word, which is, you know, it's about that word, but also the introduction discusses a broader range of issues in, in obscene language. And there's going to be a fourth edition coming out from Oxford University Press next year, and I'm, I'm finalizing the work on that. And uh, there have been several editions, and each time I think, well, there will be some small changes, and I find out it's much, much larger than I expected. So there are quite a number of new entries going in and a lot of improvements in terms of dating of existing sources. And I'm, I'm really excited with what I've been able to do with that, and I'm looking forward to that coming out. That's exciting. We'll look forward to the new edition of your book coming out and learning more about the history of expletives and language in general. Thank you so much. Jesse Scheidlauer for being here and walking us through the history of profanities and expletives for Shakespeare's lifetime. This has been a fun conversation, and I appreciate you sharing it with us. No, oh, Caspi, thanks for having me on. I've gathered up visuals and artifacts to go along with our conversation today, including images and historical artifacts. If you'd like to explore extra tidbits like pictures of that dictionary and samples of language where the words are spelled with dashes straight from Shakespeare's lifetime, then check out the show notes for today's episode. You can find all of these things, including links to Jesse Scheidlauer's book on the F word and Melissa's book on her profanities and things that we have gathered up so you can explore the history behind curse words even further, all packed into CassidyCash.com slash episode 280. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 280. Why just learn Shakespeare history when you can experience it? Inside Experience Shakespeare, you can try out a piece of Shakespeare's history for yourself with hands-on history activity kits that work like science labs for Shakespeare history. Experience Shakespeare invites you to make your own 16th century Tudor soap balls, play a card game like Naughty that shows up in Shakespeare's Two Gentlemen of Verona, or you can even make your own quill ink. Along with tons of other hands-on activities you can complete at home or in your classroom. Each kit is designed to be completed with items you may already have at home or can easily find at your local market or store. The kits come with a video tutorial, supply list, and instructions, along with coordinating with not only our podcast, but with Shakespeare's plays, so you can really liven up your study of Shakespeare's works with some hands-on activities. It's great for those kinesthetic learners. If you love diving into the 17th century and really trying out a piece of Shakespeare's history for yourself, then you will love Experience Shakespeare. It's the best place to cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Learn more and sign up today at CassidyCash.com member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. 
Patrons of That Shakespeare Life get 40% off Experience Shakespeare, along with insider access to the making of our show, including over 150 additional episodes not available on public listening platforms. Patrons get to suggest topic ideas, they see sneak peeks of upcoming episodes, and can even submit their own questions they'd like to have asked during an interview. If you enjoy our show and want to play a direct role in powering the work we do here each week, then you can sign up to be a patron right now at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our wonderful audio wizard of an audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. Thank you, Gary, especially for being there on days like today when the cough is just taking us over. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.